But let's bow our hearts in a word of prayer. And, and Lord, I just want to thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. And, and Lord, it's only by your grace uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ that makes that possible. And so, Father, we ask that today that you would help us to um, put on our thinking caps. Lord, we have a lot to cover and we have a little time to do it. And yet, Lord, it's so critical that we understand the scriptures that we'll be reading today. Uh, And we ask your Holy Spirit to empower our mind to be able to take in all that we'll hear and read. And Father, we pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts. And Father, we also pray for our children that you would bless them in the Sunday school and also over in the nursery and be with the teachers as they uh, communicate to them the word of God. And we just pray you'd open our hearts now to your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 24, and uh, we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse. It's in Matthew 24 and 25. And this is a great chapter on a, it's a sermon by the Lord Jesus Christ himself about his own second coming. And it details for us the events surrounding his second coming. And it comes out of his own mouth. So we know they're credible words. Um, One thing that you see as you read the papers, you hear the news, uh, not just in the environmental movement, but even in the economic movement and in the governments of the world, everybody's trying to make this world a better place. And uh, I applaud their efforts, but the message of Scripture is a little different. (laughs) Uh, This place is not going to get any better. It's just not. The message of Scripture is that before there is ever a better time, it's going to get a lot worse. There's going to be a lot more fatalities. There's going to be a lot more disease. There's going to be a lot more wars. To the degree that We as a society has never even imagined how bad it will get. It will be so severe. And that time is described for us. If you jump down to, we're going to be looking at verse 15 today, but I want to read verse 21 for us first. From the Lord's own mouth, here's what He promises. Here's what's on the horizon. In verse 21, Matthew 24, For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Now that's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he says that there is something coming down the pike, beloved, that the world has never even imagined could happen. It's going to be so cataclysmic, such a horrible time for the human race. They've never seen anything like it, nor will they ever see anything like it again. And the Lord gives it a name. He calls it the Great Tribulation. Now, throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, the prophets of old also spoke of this great time. This isn't some new revelation that Jesus is bringing up. This is something that has been spoken of from Thousands of years before. And if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit this morning, so you want to get your Bibles ready. Isaiah chapter 10. And look at verse 20. Isaiah 10 Verse 20, it says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck him, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end in de- in decreed, as decreed in the midst of all 
the earth. It tells us there's going to come a great time of trouble for Israel, something they've never even known before. It says, it speaks there of a remnant who will escape. But it's not going to end until it is the full end, until it's God's sovereign time to end it. It's a time of judgment, and it's coming. Over in the book of prophet Jeremiah, chapter 30, we also see him speaking of this time, verses 5 and in uh, 5 through 9 of Jeremiah chapter 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Verse 6, Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? In other words, these men are in so much tremendous pain, it's almost as if they were giving birth to a child. They're bent over. And he looks ahead and he sees this in this prophetic vision, men bent down on their, on their knees. They're in so much agonizing pain over about what is to take place. Verse 7, it says, Alas, the day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he will be saved out of it. Speaking of the same thing that Matthew 24, and in verses 8 and 9 it says, It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So there's going to be a great day of judgment, a great day of distress for the nation of Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And out of it's going to come salvation. It's going to raise up the Messiah and his kingdom. And so both Isaiah and Jeremiah point forward to this severe time that Jesus referenced over in Matthew 24. Now, notice in chapter uh, 12 of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel speaks here of the very same day. He says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a what? Time of trouble. Time of trouble. Michael's role in God's economy is to protect his special people. He's going to stand up for their protection. But it says that there's going to come a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till all time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Time of devastation, of horror, of purging is down the road. And then lastly, over in Zechariah, we see in chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Zechariah 13.8, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds, listen to this, shall be cut off and perish. Two-thirds. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. In other words, there's going to come a time when two out of three people die in the land of Israel. You think it was a holocaust before. This is nothing. What we've seen before is nothing compared to this. He says that he's going to refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon the name, his name, and he will answer them. And he says, I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. In other words, there's going to be this time of purging, this time of judgment, a time of horror when two out of three, the Jewish nation of Israel, will be killed. But a third will persevere through that and will be brought to the awareness that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Messiah. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Behold, a day is coming of the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is very key. 
All the nations of the world are going to come against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the woman raped. Half of the city shall go out in exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Jesus said that there's a coming a time in the future of this world unlike any other. A time of horror as such we've never known before. And particularly it focuses directly on the nation of Israel. So it's nothing new when we read in Matthew 24 that Jesus says that this is going to happen. I mean, the Jewish people think that they went through a lot before. They went through nothing compared to what's coming. It makes it, that look like a picnic, which is hard to believe. And it will not only impact Israel, but remember, all the nations of the world will be, be gathered against Israel, and so it's going to impact the entire world. So things are not going to get better, beloved. They're just not. Now, we may have little respites here and there, and boy, the economy may take a little turn, or the gas prices may fall, or whatever. But in the long range of things, things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. And they're going to get so bad, they've never been that bad before. Some of you lived through the Great Depression and all that. It's not going to be anything near that. It's, 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 it's going to just make that, like I said, look, look like a vacation, going to be that bad that's what the prophet said and then after that if you go back to matthew 29 or 24 in verse 29 after that happens it says immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken verse 30 then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So this is a time that's going to precede this horrible great tribulation. It's going to be it's going to precede the time of Christ's coming. So Jesus is preaching this sermon related to his second coming. And it's not only about his second coming, but it's also about, verse 21 makes it clear, about the great tribulation. He wants them to understand what's coming down the road. And you say, well, why did he begin preaching this message? You know if you've been here through the series... But let me just recap it. Remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's staying with Martha and and Lazarus outside of Jerusalem because it's a Passover. And he's traveling back and forth. Monday he goes in on, on, and they they proclaim him to be the Messiah. What we know is Palm Sunday. Most likely happened on a Monday. Tuesday he goes and he cleans out the temple because they just turned it into a mockery. Wednesday, he goes back and he's teaching the whole day in the temple. He just got done throwing out all the money changers and everything the day before. And as he taught, all the multitude of people are gathering there because it's a Passover. It's just elbow to elbow. So everybody's listening to all this. But after he began to teach the people, the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day stood up and said, hey, by what authority are you saying these things? By what authority are you doing these things? Remember? We've been through all this. And so then he was engaged in a dialogue with them for the rest of the day. And basically, he was explaining to them that God is taking away, for a period of time, the kingdom of God. Chapter 21, verse 43, he said it. Very clearly, he said, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits of it, a people bringing forth the fruits of it. He was saying to the religious leaders, You know what? You've been stewards of God's word, and and, and you're, you're the ones that are supposed to be the caretakers. Well, no longer. 
you're going to be kind of cut off for a period of time. Not replaced. Hear me, cut off. He's going to set them aside for a period of time. Romans 11 makes that clear. Chapter 22 in Matthew, we looked at that when he gave the uh, wedding feast. Remember the parable of the wedding feast? He held a, a wedding feast for his son, the king did. And he went out and the, the, the invited guests didn't come. And so he sent out and he destroyed them. He burned up their cities. It says, verse 9, he says, He told his servants to go out on the highways, and as many as you find, bring them to the marriage. And so there was a new people brought in to be these special custodians of God's word and God's truth. And the glory departed from the nation of Israel for a period of time. Not permanently. Some people teach, oh, the church replaced Israel. No, it didn't. Israel will always be God's people. That's very clearly taught in Scripture. But for a period of time in their history, they're being set aside. And he sums it up, and we saw this at the end of chapter 23 in verse 37, when he cries out to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as as a hen gathers its brood under her wings, and you would not. In other words, you've had opportunity, opportunity, opportunity to come to the Messiah. You won't do it. But I like because he didn't stop there at at verse 39. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, there's going to come a time in, in the nation of Israel when they turn their hearts to God. And they're going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, the very one that they persecuted, the very one that they hung on the cross. Their hearts are going to be transformed and they're going to believe in that Messiah as their Savior. What a wonderful day that will be. We just got a lot of stuff to go through to get to that day. And that's what Zechariah 12.10 says, basically, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And it says that they will mourn for him as for an only son. Their hearts are going to be broken. They're going to be mournful. They're going to be repented, repentful of what they've done to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to come back to him and they're going to embrace him as their Lord and Savior and as their King. Now, as the disciples are hearing all this, they begin to wonder, wow, where, where is he going with this? Because they didn't see this big time in between the first coming, the incarnation, and the second coming. They just saw it all happening at once. And they thought, hey, let's, you know, they're leaving the temple area, and he looks around, and they're talking about these big stones that make up the temple, and he says, hey, there's going to come a time when these stones aren't even upon each other. Everything's going to come crashing down. That was fulfilled, by the way, in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so they're probably thinking, yeah, tear down that temple that Herod built. We're looking for the one that Ezekiel talked about. So they're, they're ready to go. The disciples are, are ready for him to get this ball rolling. And so they're asking, when? When is this going to happen? When are we going to say, blessed is the, 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 the one who comes in the name of the Lord? I mean, even in the first chapter of Acts, they're still asking that same question. They think it's going to be any moment. They think it could happen tomorrow. They didn't know that there was going to be this thing called the church and all this time in between. They didn't understand that. So they ask him the question, what will be the sign of your coming? Not that he was going to go away and come back, but, but what they're asking, that word they're coming is really has the idea of presence. In other words, Lord, we believe you're the Messiah, but when, when are you really going to become the Messiah? I mean, yeah, you're the guy John the Baptist heralded you're the guy that does all the miracles you're the guy that raises the dead you're the obviously you're the messiah but when are you really gonna become the messiah with a full presence we want to see the messianic glory what's the sign of your presence when is this end of this 
age going to happen? What do we look for? Is there going to be an angel from heaven? What's going to happen? They wanted to know. And that's the question. And so the Lord then preaches this message beginning in verse 4 of chapter 24 through chapter 25. And he begins to tell them about his second coming and what will precede it. So he's describing a lot of what happens in the the tribulation period. That seven-year period at the end of the age. When literally the wheels are going to fall off the cart. And the world is going to be thrown into this great tribulation the last three and a half years. Now just so we're clear, I've heard people sometimes they read this text and they say, oh this must be talking about the rapture of the church. No, this has nothing to do with the rapture of the church. During this time that we're reading about in 24 and 25, the church has already been raptured. The church is gone. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, hey, take heart. We're not going to be here for all this horrible stuff. Amen? Praise God. If you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, I would would pray, I would beg you to get on your knees before a holy God and repent of your sin and ask Him to save you. Because He will. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you. Lord, Help me put together the pieces of this puzzle so this makes sense. Give me the ability, the faith to believe. See, all that comes from God. You're not going to come home and try to figure this out on your own. God has to specifically touch your heart. That's where the transformation process comes from. It's by the touch of God. And so this message doesn't deal with the rapture. It deals with the second coming of Christ. And so he begins to tell them, in verse 4, a series of things to look for. Things to look for before this great day of uh, tribulation really happens. And he calls them birth pains. And we've been through this, and I'm just going to kind of rattle them off. They're right there in your your outline. But there's going to be widespread deception, verses 4 and 5. There's going to be... Political and military disputes, wars, verses 6 and 7. There's going to be serious, and I'm talking serious disasters occurring around the world. Economic crisis, physical conditions are going to change. Geographic catastrophes are going to happen. And then we saw last week where there's going to be even emotional changes toward the people of God in verses 9 to 10. In other words, they're not going to be tolerated anymore. They're going to be slaughtered you live during that time. There's going to be religious counterfeits that have great influence. There's going to be moral chaos. There's going to be spiritual complacency affecting believers because the the tribulation is going to be so, so bad. And then there's the promise in verse 13 of the perseverance of the saints That if you are a believer during this time, take heart because God will give you the grace to get through it. And then in verse 14, there'll be actually a preaching of the Word of God in a very divine way around the entire globe. So every tongue, every nation will hear one last time the message of the gospel. And he says in verse 8, this is just the beginning of birth pains. Just the beginning. This isn't the actual event. This is just the beginning. This is just a foreshadow of what's coming. So he gives them a picture of these general things. And then they say, well, how are we going to know for sure? Is Is there something out there that you can point to that can, when we see this happen, that, well, this is really happening now. Because you know what? To be honest, we can look around and see economic crisis. We can see moral chaos. We can see, you know, uh, the idea that there's, there's people trying to um, falsify themselves and claim themselves to be the Messiah, be Christ. I mean, we see that all around us today. So is there something a little more exact the disciples want to know? What's the sign? And that's what their question is. So after giving them a general list of things, he focuses in on verse 15. So turn 
Matthew 24, verse 15. I just want to read this for us because it's, this is where we're going to spend our time kind of putting other scriptures around this one. Jesus said, so when you see, and at the end of that verse it says, let the reader understand. So he's about to tell them what this event is. When you see this happen, you better, you better pray that you understand what's going on because the end is very, very, very near. He's giving them general signs, the birth pains, but now he's getting right down to the exact thing that will actually trigger this great tribulation that's going to be coming. And it's very key that you understand this because if we don't understand verse 15, we're not going to understand what's happening in verses 16 through the rest of the whole Olivet Discourse. So we have to understand verse 15. Now remember, who is he talking? So when he says there in verse 15, so when you see. I know he's speaking with the disciples, but he's not talking to them. He's not referring to them. He's speaking prophetically to the people who are going to be alive during that tribulation time. And we narrowed that down in one of the first two messages, and we looked at it's basically Jews who live in the land of Judea who have come to faith in Christ. You can get the message on that, and that would explain why we believe that's what it says. It says right there in verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And it says you better hope it doesn't happen on a, on a Sabbath, so he must be referring to Jews. And then those people, because they're going to be slaughtered, why? On his namesake. So they're, they're Jews who have put their faith in Christ, and they're living during the tribulation period, and they're living in Judea. And so he says, when you see, and then he says this, the abomination of desolation. What's the event that triggers the great tribulation? It's just that. It's the abomination of desolation. If you look over at Luke chapter 21, he gives you a different angle on this. And he says, in verse, uh, Luke 21, verse 20, he says this, And when you shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that it's what? Desolation is near. And then he goes on and he says, Hey, when that happens, make sure you flee to the mountains. Luke 21, 20. So his sign is that when you see Jerusalem being encompassed by the armies of the world, like vultures, ready to pounce down on them, know that this desolation is near. That's what he wants them to understand. Desolation, what does that word mean? It means ruin. It means just kind of something that's just laid waste. When you look at the newspaper and the news and you see what these tornadoes and stuff have done back on the East Coast, okay, that's desolation. There's a house there one day, one minute, and the next day it's all over the field. There's nothing left of it. It's gone. That's what desolation is. You know it's going to come when you see all the armies surrounding Jerusalem, Israel. And beloved, we live in a day, in an age today, when you can look at that and say, you know, that's not, probably not too far off. That's not too far off. It's exactly right. Look back at Zechariah chapter 14. Stay with me on this. I know this is kind of, it's, it's going to be a hard message to understand. It's just going to, it's just the nature of the, the beast, pardon the pun here, it's just, it's, it's just difficult. Because you've got to take all these pieces of Scripture and kind of weave them together so it makes some sense. In Zechariah 14, it says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. And he says in verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. So this is something that's prophetically told about in Zechariah. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people 
shall not be cut off from the city. In other words, Zechariah says, you know what? This time is coming, this time when Jerusalem is going to be just ransacked. And it says, not some of the nations of the world, it says all. All of the nations will be against it. Well, what's going to make this happen? That's the question. Why are all the nations all of a sudden going to be pouncing on Israel? Why is Israel going to be the focal point of this battle? Well, it already is the focal point. Would you agree? I mean, you can't even pick up a a newspaper without seeing Israel somewhere on the front page. See, this is all being orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. I mean, Israel's this little, small, little piece of land. You think, who cares? But boy, everybody in the world is focused on the Middle East. There's tensions in the Middle East. Would you agree to that? And what the Lord is saying is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies of the world, destruction is near. Well, What is this destruction? Matthew makes it clear in chapter 24. He says it's the abomination of desolation. Spoken of, he doesn't leave it up for for us to guess. What is this abomination of desolation? What's he talking about? He explains it right there in Matthew 24. He says, the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel. The one spoken of by the prophet Daniel. If you look at Daniel chapter 11, because that's where we have to go, that's why I'm saying it's kind of a difficult deal here. We're going to be jumping around. But Daniel chapter 11, what does Daniel say about this? This abomination of desolation. Because if we understand what Daniel's saying, maybe we can understand what Jesus is referring to. Look at verse 37. Daniel chapter 11, verse 37. We meet this man called the Antichrist. Here he's called the willful king, the king who does just whatever he wants. He doesn't do the will of God, he does his own, his own thing. And it explains there a little bit about him. It says he'll pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by, by a woman. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, does that mean that he's going to be homosexual? I don't know. Could mean that. He shall pay no attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself, what? Above all. See, if you put this together with Daniel chapter 2, where it basically tells of a time when the whole Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire, will be almost resurrected. The old Roman Empire basically accompanied, occupied Western Europe, Eastern Europe. And it says that that whole conglomerate of nations will be brought back to power. And there's going to come a time when that confederacy, whatever you want to call it, some have referred to it as European Union, whatever, they're going to come against the Messiah. And out of that conglomeration of countries, there's going to be one that's risen up, and he's going to do it in a peaceful manner, not in a forceful manner, in a very deceptive manner. We've already talked about this in uh, previous weeks. He's going to be the Antichrist, the great leader. And he's going to basically come to the defense, you believe it or not, of Israel. Because remember, all the nations of the world are around Israel. They're about ready to just kind of attack Israel. And this one world leader who rises up above them all, he's basically, for a period of time, going to become a savior to Israel. He's going to be the one who protects Israel. And not only protect them, but he's actually going to be able to sign a treaty with them. And they're going to make an alliance with him. 
And the Bible says that when that alliance is signed, when that treaty is signed and agreed upon, that's basically what begins this whole seven-year period of what we call the tribulation period. And they're going to do it for their own protection. Everybody's going to be against them. He's going to come in. He's going to fight against all these other nations. Daniel chapter eleven forty says a king comes from the south and the north, from the east and the west. They're all converging on Israel. Well, the, the Antichrist steps in and says, hey, I'll help you out. Just sign here on the dotted line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can build your temple. You can do all that stuff. Don't worry about it. Let's, let's take care of business here. He goes in and he defeats all these other nations. He's victorious in his battle. The Antichrist is. And the moment he becomes victorious, that's basically right in the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half years in. Remember, he has a signed treaty with Israel. As soon as he wins that battle, he then commits what Daniel refers to, what Jesus refers to, is this abomination of desolation. He negates on his promise to Israel. And he turns his wrath on them. And he begins to persecute them. And he begins to blaspheme God. So Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, that first Jerusalem, in Luke, he says it's going to be surrounded by armies. And then the Antichrist is going to come to their defense, win the battle, but then he's going to do this abomination of desolation. And it says there that this abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel in verse 15 of Matthew 24, it says that it's going to be standing in the holy place. So when you see this happen, when you see all the armies surrounding Jerusalem get a little nervous, but when you see this guy raise up and defeat all the armies, you, it's, it's really close. And when he begins to turn his wrath on all the, all the, the, the people who have followed, are following God and not him, well, then you're in it. Well, what is this abomination? What is it? I mean, the word literally means something that's just detestable, something that's repulsive to God, unholy. It speaks of things that are associated with idolatry. Revelation 7, uh, verses 4 and 5, it talks about the abominations of the false religious system. It's called the mystery Babylon, the prostitute, the harlot. In Revelation 21, 27, it talks about the fact that in the final heaven, there's not going to be any abominations. There's not going to be anything that abominates. Nothing that will be repulsive to God. That's what we have to look forward to. So it's used in association with things that are dealing with idol worship. Things that are unholy to God. And he's going to... This is going to happen and it's going to happen in the holy place, it says in verse 15. And you can read different commentaries and they say, oh, that's this, that's that. Basically, the holy place, to boil it down for you real quick, if you go over to Acts chapter 21, 28, it tells us exactly what the holy place is. In Acts 21, 28, Paul is coming back from Jerusalem. He's been out preaching in Gentile areas, so he wants to come back and kind of hook up with his Jewish friends. To do that, he's got to be um, go through some purification rites, some ritual. And when they found out that he was actually there, in the temple, some of his enemies started a riot. And here's what their accusation was against Paul. Verse 28 of Acts 21. Men of Israel, help. This is the man, they're speaking of Paul the apostle, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled, what's it say? This holy place. So the holy place we're talking about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, is the temple. That's what it is. Well, what's going to happen? This thing triggers this whole great tribulation. 
The army, armies are coming around Jerusalem, and you know it's, it's going to be near. Well, what is it? It's not just a one-time event, because it says there in verse 15 of Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then what's it say? Standing. It's the idea that it's continuing. It's not just a one-time event. It's something that continues. Well, if we go back, be patient with me, Daniel chapter 11. It tells us what this is. It gives us an indication. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. This is an illustration of a historic figure. So what we're going to read about actually took place. We can go back in history and actually find out not only who did it, but the date it happened. It says in verse 31 of Daniel 11, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination, there it is, that word again, that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. What are they... What is he speaking about here? He's talking about basically a historic figure we know of as Antiochus Epiphanes. You ever heard of him? He, he reigned basically, he was a Syrian king, and he reigned between 175 and 165 B.C. And this was the time when basically Greece had power over this whole region. So they were under what you might call Greek occupation, for lack of a better word. And the Greeks gave this king, this Syrian king, Antiochus, the right to rule the land. And I mean, just to give you a little bit of what he thought of himself, he called himself not just Antiochus, but Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the great one. (laughs) A little bit of ego there. He was literally out of his mind. He was a maniac. Matter of fact, the people behind his back, instead of calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Maniac. So he was a very interesting gentleman, you might say. And so he, what he's speaking of here, when he's taking away the burnt offering, verse 31, and set up the abomination that makes desolate, This is a prophecy that this is actually going to happen. Well, we know from history that this gentleman was a great persecutor of the people of Israel. And if you want to read about that, if you have an old Catholic Bible, you turn to Maccabees, you can read all about this. Okay. Um, One of the apocryphal books. But he wanted to basically stamp out the Jewish religion. Well, to stamp out the Jewish religion, what do you have to do? I mean, you can keep on slaughtering Jews and slaughtering Jews and slaughtering Jews, or you can go hit them right where it hurts and and take away their temple. Because that's, the Israel was a theocracy, and the temple was kind of the central point of their nation. And that's exactly what he did. It says that he went in and he desecrated the temple. How did he do that? History tells us that he went in and on the altar, he sacrificed a pig. Now, if you know anything about Jewish people and pigs, pork, they don't go together. Okay? So he actually went into their most holy of places, sacrificed a pig on the altar. Then he proceeded to have his men grab the priest and ram the pig's meat down the priest's throats. Disgusting. And then on top of that, he brought in one of the Greek gods, Zeus, and he put him on the altar. And he propped him up, and he said, this is your God now. Well, what happened to the Jewish people? Are they going to come there to sacrifice? Are they going to come back to their temple? No, it's been desecrated. 
It's desolate. It serves no purpose for them anymore. They can't go there. They'll be defiled. And that's where you get the idea, the abomination of desolation. He did something so horrible, this man in history, that the Jews would never even go back there. Finally, he was overturned through the Maccabean Revolution. And they were able to go back to their their religious practices. But see, this, this thing in history is just a kind of a preview of what's going to happen actually during the tribulation. Go back one chapter in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we doing okay? Sorry, this is kind of a tough message, so just kind of hang in there. Daniel chapter 9. In verse 24, Daniel describes what we're, what, what's known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Daniel mentions this desolation, this abomination of desolation three times. And he says in verse 24, follow this, kind of put your thinking caps on. Seventy weeks are de- decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin... And to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Well, we know this is actually going to take place in the future. This hasn't happened yet. I don't think that we're in everlasting righteousness yet. Okay, so this is something that he's speaking of in the future. Now, when he says there, Seventy weeks are decreed. All right? Think of a week. We have seven days in a week. Well, think each one of those days being a year. That's the time frame we're working with. So we have 70 weeks of seven years. The time frame is 490 years. And that's the determined time that the people of Israel at the end of which this transgression is going to be finished, that all this stuff is going to come to a conclusion. You say, wow, it actually says that? It says 490 years. That's exactly what it says. 490 years till the end. 490 years to the kingdom of the Messiah when sin is done with and righteousness is, is reigned supreme. And you say, well... If we know it's 490 years, then maybe we can figure out a little more closely when this actually takes place. So maybe we can figure out when the end is going to happen, which is kind of true. And it says in the very next verse in Daniel, it says, understand... It from the going forth, look at what it says, of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, when was that? You know what? God's word tells us. Not just in generalities, beloved, but it tells us the exact day that this took place. When was that? When did this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem go out? It was Artaxerxes. In the 440s, he made a decree to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city and let the Jews do that. Nehemiah, all the, all the different books, they talk about that. And it gives the exact day it happened, when it started. And there's people a lot brighter than me that have actually written books and they've calculated out, I mean mathematicians, down to the day, beloved, And it works out. And so when you start counting from when this decree was issued, it says in that verse, there's going to be basically seven weeks and then 62 weeks. So last time I checked, seven plus 62 equals 69. So we have, out of the 70 weeks that he's talking about, we have 69 basically accounted for. And it says that it's going to be 69 weeks until the prince comes, the Messiah. 
And like I said, there's books written on this that will, will detail this out for you. Remember, we're dealing with 490 years. You take away seven, you have 483 So it's the first 69 weeks that we're talking about here. And it says there's going to be 69 weeks, 483 years, till the Messiah comes. We know the 69th year ended when the Messiah came. But the 70th year hasn't come yet. So we have this period of seven years floating around out here in front of us somewhere. In verse 27, there it says there's this prince, in verse 26, rather, who's going to come in the future, and there's a prince who's going to come, and he's going to bring, it says, desolation. There's that word again. And he's coming, and he's going to come, and he's going to make a covenant with Israel for one week. But in the middle of the week, remember a week is, we're crossing over to years, so it's seven years. In the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he will cause the sacrifice and the offerings to cease. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes did previously in history. And we know he's not talking about Antiochus. Tyke epiphanies because he's saying, hey, eternal righteousness is going to reign and all this stuff. That's not going to happen until the Messiah is here. So you've got to be at the second coming of Christ. But he's going to go into halfway through that seven years, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. And he's going to honor his little pact with Israel. And then he's going to basically march into the temple and he's going to set himself up. He's going to cause desolation upon their temple. He's going to cause the sacrifices to stop. And that's going to continue until the end. Another three and a half years. Like I said, it's not a one-time event. He just doesn't come into the temple and you know, spit on the thing and leave. No, we're going to find out he's actually there the whole time. So what you have then is the coming of Christ and just before the coming of Christ you have a seven year period known as the tribulation. And that's started by a signing of a pact, a covenant with this world ruler, this antichrist with Israel. And he's going to protect Israel. And then three and a half years in he's going to negate and he's going to basically turn his heart and slaughter Israel. Then the great tribulation will happen. Daniel 12, 11 says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, that's that abomination of desolation, and the abomination that makes desolate set up, notice it's set up just like Jesus said, it's going to stand there. It's not something that just comes and goes. It becomes permanent. It's standing in the holy place, Matthew tells us. From that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there's going to be a thousand, it says, two hundred and what? Ninety days. You say, well, wait a minute. That's thirty days more than... 1260. Where did the extra days come from? Well, Revelation tells us. Revelation 12.6 says that there's going to be 1260 days. Daniel says there's going to be 1290 days. Revelation 12.6 says the tribulation period will last for 1260 days. That great tribulation period. Where do we do? What do we do with these extra 30 days that the scriptures speak of? Well, after the tribulation is over, at the end, when the Lord comes on the Mount of Olives, it talks about in, in Zechariah, 
It says that he's going to create this massive valley to which all the nations of the world are going to be brought and they're going to be judged there. Matthew 25, we're going to get to that eventually and it's going to talk about the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. That's going to happen during that 30-day period. But it also says at the end of Daniel, <laughs> I said, I warned you about this. This is tough stuff. At the end of Daniel, it also says not just 1290 in verse 11, but in verse 12 of Daniel 12, it says, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 13, 1,335 days. So that's another 45 days. What's he talking about there? And I've written a little diagram for you, so hopefully you can understand this. The 30-day period, just to make it real clear here, is the judgment of the nations. The 40-day period is a time when the Messiah basically sets up his kingdom here on earth. He's establishing the millennial kingdom. And after that period of time, that's when the actual millennium begins. I know that's a lot, and you can study that on your own, and it's probably way too much more than I should even share with you. But I just want you to not to think that, oh, well, wait a minute, these numbers aren't adding up. They add up, trust me, to the day. And so this thing that's going to trigger it, it's this abomination of desolation, the desecration of the holy place. And you say, okay, I guess I'm with you so far. I don't know. Turn over to Revelation, because I want you to understand what this abomination is. Revelation tells us, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 in the book of Revelation, we're, we're introduced here at this point to the Antichrist. Uh, we meet the Antichrist and uh, his cohort, the whole thing. But in verse 5 of Revelation 13, it says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority, what's it say, for how long? Forty-two months, three and a half years. The last half of the tribulation. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemes against God, blaspheming the name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation and language. And all who dwell on the earth will what? What's it say? Worship him. Or worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So what this abomination of desolation is, beloved, it's it's the actual Antichrist himself going into God's people, their temple, and desecrating it, turning his back on the treaty that he signed with them, and saying, okay, game over. Now you've got to worship me. And I'm going to stand right here and make sure you do. And if you don't, basically, you're executed. And he does this in a very vile way. And he goes on for 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. Doesn't go beyond that. He stops right there. That's, that's what God has laid out. That's his period of time. And then after that, Messiah comes and there's going to be a 30-day period after the revelation where the nations of the world will be judged. And then after that point in time, there'll be a 45-day period where God actually sets up his rule and reign here on earth. So for 42 months, he's offering his blasphemy to God. Now remember, this is a guy who starts off in a very peaceful way. As a matter of fact, Usher, er, Israel signs a treaty with him. He actually protects them. See, he's a deceiver. Well, what is this 
this abomination of desolation, he actually sets himself up to be worshipped and demands it. And he can do it because he's defeated the whole world. There's nobody that stands in his way. He becomes that God of all gods. And the world must bow before. And if they don't, they're slaughtered. Well, as soon as that happens, that's when this great tribulation begins. And you say, wow, okay, that was a lot. That's the abomination of desolation. The Bible speaks to it, and it will happen. Just like Jesus said, he's coming back one day, that will happen. Just like Jesus said, you know what, you're not going to get to the Father unless you come through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is going to happen. See, Jesus doesn't mince words. He's not trying to be politically correct. He's not trying to to, to necessarily woo people and just have them, you know, say certain things to people just so they feel a certain way. That's not the Lord that we serve. He tells you the truth. And God's Word always tells us the truth. And God's Word tells us that, you know what, beloved? There's not one of us that can stand before a holy God in and of ourselves because of our sin. We've utterly blown it before God. We're just steeped in sin. We took the men through the book called The Mortification of Sin. And the one thing I learned is, you know what? Sin is not something that you do. Sin is what? What you are. Because you know what? We can do a lot of good things. We can start to feel pretty good about ourselves. But God says, no, you know what? All those good things you're doing, if they're outside of Christ, they're but filthy rags. doesn't mean anything. And yet we have a God who continues to reach out to us time and time and time again. And the message that he gives us is not a hard message. It's a message of grace. It's a message of love. It's a message of forgiveness. And he continues to reach out even to this day. I pray that as you ponder these things in your heart, as you realize that these things one day will take place, I pray that God would give you the grace to believe, to cry out for mercy, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be broken over your sin. It's the only way out of this mess. It's the only way. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, Lord, I know that this was a lot to endure. I'll use the word. But Father, it's your word. And your word speaks very exactly to these things. And Lord, we do need to make sure that we are crossing the T's and dotting the I's. We can't speak in generalities about these things because your word doesn't speak in generalities about these things. Father, we pray as we look at this abomination of desolation Lord, I pray that we would take a peek at our own hearts. That Lord, just like in times before in history and even times to come, there'll be a time when they just make desolate what is holy. Lord, we were created in your image, and yet we're stained by sin. Our hearts are desolate. Our hearts are an abomination to a holy God. Father, I pray that you would cause thanksgiving to rule and reign in our hearts as we ponder what you've done for us. That you've saved us from our plight. You've saved us from our sin. You've saved us from the punishment of sin. 
Because your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took that punishment upon himself. He paid our debt. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray, I I beg, Lord, that you would transform their hearts, that you would open their eyes to see the glorious gospel, the good news of Christ, that they'd be willing to bend the knee, to acknowledge that there is a God who is bigger than them and more holy than they, that they would acknowledge their need of him, that you would save them, For us Christians, Lord, I pray that we would examine our own hearts as we come before this communion table in a few moments. That you would help us just to turn inward right now, focus on our own lives. Lord, all this is in the future. But Father, we live in the reality of the present. And so Father, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts that you desire to do. If there's anything in our heart that would bring you dishonor, Lord, I pray that we would confess it to you. The Bible is very clear. If we confess our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for that promise. And Lord, we ask that you would do your work here and now. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.